Hi, it's Tara. So today we have something a little different. Condensing Robert Maxwell's story down to eight episodes meant we had to leave some great stuff on the cutting room floor. There was only space for so many stories about Robert Maxwell, you know, pissing off the media, the British public, and Elton John. But there was one interview that we knew we had to fit in. And I went to see the editor of The Guardian after I'd got this offer from Maxwell. And he said he was really surprised that Maxwell had offered me the job. But he said, um, if you don't take it, you might regret it for the rest of your life. And, and I think he was, he was right. I'm Tara Palmieri. Today on Power, the Maxwells, Julia Langdon, and life in Maxwelliana. Um, My name is Julia Langdon. I was political editor of the Daily Mirror um, for five years when Maxwell bought the newspaper. Julia Langdon was working on the politics desk at the Guardian newspaper in London when she got a call from Maxwell. Langdon accepted the offer and became the first woman to become a political editor of a national daily newspaper in the UK. She spent five of the seven years Maxwell owned the paper working and traveling with Maxwell. But when she took that job offer, she didn't quite realize how much her life, as well as her career, was about to change. On his first weekend in his employment, on the Saturday, which is a day off for for weekday journalists at that time, and on that Saturday of my first week, I had Maxwell come on. There was a story involving the first test tube baby born in Britain, and he said, I want you to get hold of the Secretary of State for Health and the opposition Secretary of State and all the Secretaries of State you can find anywhere. And I ended up writing the splash in the Sunday papers of the newspaper, of the group, um, which was not my job, and I was extremely resentful. And on the Monday morning, I went out and bought an answering machine, which I hadn't previously owned. Um, which I always had very firmly on on Saturday. Langdon was going to soon have to get used to being at Maxwell's beck and call. I never went on holiday, and this was in the days before mobile phones. I never went on holiday without having um, a demand that I ring him from wherever I was. You know, someone, someone would come up the cliff of whichever Greek island I was on with a forked stick, and I knew the forked stick would bear a message saying, ring Robert Maxwell. And I would ring the news desk rather than Maxwell when I eventually found a telephone, because I would have to trek for a day or two to find a phone. Um, and then you'd get through to the news desk and you'd say, oh, hello, it's yeah, Langdon here in Corfu. Um, <laughs> Maxwell's after me and they'd say oh anyone know why Maxwell wants Julia Langdon um, and nobody would know and then it would turn out um, he was looking for somebody who was also on holiday in Greece so he thought he would just ring me because I might know where that person was you know I mean it was it was just power play quickly Langdon began to understand what she signed up for Maxwell calling at all times Maxwell involving himself in the daily decisions of the paper much like he did to Roy Greenslade Maxwell would ring you up. Um, I mean, I, he he used to insist that he saw the leader every day in the Daily Mirror, the editorial opinion piece. Want to guess what Maxwell would do? I think you know. He'd suggest changes, usually very tiny, just to involve himself 
Um, but in fact, he wouldn't check that you had changed something. So if he asked you to change something and you said, yes, Bob, no, Bob, three bags full, Bob, um, that was fine. Um, and then you just put it in the paper as it was and he wouldn't notice. Maxwell wasn't interested in the details of the paper, but he was interested in his staff serving as entertainment when he hosted events. He had a, a palace on the top floor of the Mirror Building where you were, one would be summoned for, for um, lunches and cocktail parties and things. He was always bringing people in for entertaining and he liked to have people like his political editors there to, to uh, talk to them. What you did was you went up to the ninth floor on in the Mirror Building, um, which was where his office was, and then you walked across into this the next door building where his apartment was. I mean, I think he had he had bedrooms there as well, but there was certainly two dining rooms because on one occasion I went to um, I went to one lunch when he was holding two at the same time without the people realizing he was having consecutive lunches. You know, he'd just say, excuse me, and get up from the table I was at, which was with the Secretary of State for Health. Um, And I knew he was going to another dining room where he was having another lunch. Beyond the aggravation, Langan's role let her know the man himself. In a way, few people ever got to see him. Maxwell was making his first trip back to Czechoslovakia. It was an emotional trip for him, and he was palpably looking forward to it when when we were on the plane. And he wondered um, what sort of reception he was going to get at Prague. He wondered whether they were going to send the, the, the foreign minister. Do you think I'll get the foreign minister? Do you think I'll get red carpets? And I, I didn't have a clue. And I said, I don't know, Bob. We'll find out soon, though. Um, and what happened when we landed... It subsequently transpired that the follow me vehicle on the on the tarmac had not been told that an important guest was coming in and to take us to the VIP terminal. And so, in the middle of the night, they took Maxwell and his entourage to the standard terminal. And they said, "Well, who are you then?" And um, we we told them who we were. We were not expected, and we were locked up. I mean, they put us in a they put us in a box and locked the door and went away. Took our passports. Maxwell was not notably able to communicate in Czech, and they they weren't prepared for international travellers either. They just said passports, and it was all very aggressive and unpleasant. So the three of us are standing in this. Um, in this box, and we're, you know, oh, 45 minutes, an hour or so. I mean, it was a considerable period of time with Maxwell getting hotter and angrier um, and steaming with indignation. And then in the dim recesses of this dark airport, we could see a flurry of activity, and it was the welcoming party which had, which had run over from the VIP um, the terminal, and... Um, carrying with it somebody with a musical instrument. I can't remember what they blew. Somebody had a bunch of flowers, which I got, and a red carpet. I know. Classic. Now, Maxwell might have just wanted to go so he could walk a red carpet, but the stated reason for the trip was actually pretty strange. He had gone to Czechoslovakia to present... um, um, Gustav Husak, who was the um, miserable bastard who ran um, Czechoslovakia at the time, with um, a white leather bound hand tooled copy of his greatest speeches oppressing the people of Czechoslovakia. Google him. See for yourself. Anyways, 
it was an exercise in mutual vanity. The the great dictators of our time were, of course, thrilled to receive nice hand tool vellum covered editions of their greatest speeches, and by handing them over and asking to come in person in order to present it, Maxwell had access to the dictator in question. And um, that was what he was doing with Husak. Husak stroked Maxwell's ego in return. And at one point in the course of the e- of one of the evenings we were there, they had apparently lit the old city of Prague in Maxwell's honour. Um, they had they had done some festive lighting in the city. And we had been driven to the other side of the river in order to admire this. And Maxwell, of course, is absolutely thrilled to bits by um, the fact that the old city of Prague has been lit in his honour. And he said, he said to me something like, why do you think they've done this to me, for me? And I, I, wasn't, I, I wasn't sort of diminishing, but I just said, well, I suppose they're trying to um, impress you in some sort of way. But yes, he said, you know, he just wanted, he wanted to be, to be recognised. It's, it's sort of little boy pathetic, really. Um, so that's, you know, that's a measure of the vanity. But the vanity got Maxwell in over his head. And Maxwell, who had a facility for reaching for untruths, said oh, that he was very fond of hunting. As far as anyone knew, he'd never been hunting in his life. And Husek said, well, you shall go hunting at my summer palace this afternoon. Suddenly, Maxwell had talked Langen and himself into spending a day hunting in the Czech countryside. That's after the break. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Do you ever wonder how celebrities order food? Like, is Sarah Paulson a Diet Coke or a regular Coke girlie? (laughs) Some peasant Coke? No. Or how does Sofia Vergara order a pizza? No, no, no tomatoes. I cannot eat tomatoes. tomatoes? Are you killed mushrooms? Not really. (laughs) If these are the details you need, and I know you do, I have the podcast for you. I'm Jesse Tyler Ferguson, and on my podcast, Dinners on Me, I take some notable friends of mine out to dinners in Los Angeles and New York City. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. That thing was delicious. They drove around 50 miles out of the city to this beautiful summer palace. Then people started asking Langdon weird questions. I was asked for Maxwell's inside leg measurement because they were trying to kit him out in traditional Czech hunting gear, which is sort of forest green tweed and triangular hat. I wish there were pictures of him in his outfit, but... They were unable to secure a pair of hunting green trousers that were in his size, but he had to wear his suit trousers with his kit. So Maxwell is probably feeling a bit in over his head. They're on this excursion. There's all these burly guys helping them on the hunt. They aren't on horseback because Captain Bob can't ride a horse. But this is all becoming an ordeal with a lot of pageantry. So we're all assembled on a lawn 
and um, bugles are blown, and then a tribe of ladies in white coats and, and dresses and uniforms and things come out of the palace bearing trays of vodka and we all drink toasts to the good fortune of the huntsman and um, you know, speeches are made. It was incredibly formal. And then they all get into a lorry and off they go. Langan stayed behind and hours passed. One, then another. Uh, eventually they return with the body of a mouflon deer and the ladies in white uniform appear again with more trays of vodka and more speeches are made of the hunt and more bugles are blown um, and Maxwell's beaming about all of this it's all terrific we eat a hunting stew of meatballs and things which was the first of several dinners Maxwell ate that night speeches are made in praise of Maxwell the great huntsman and it was during one of these that um, I caught the eye of one of the huntsmen and just you know, I just knew from the look in the man's eye that he was the guy who'd shot the deer. But we we nevertheless praised Maxwell. Much later that evening, after two more dinners, I think, we were having a whiskey before bed. And he said, um, I didn't shoot that deer, you know. That's why we were so long, because they were a very long time. And I said, well, I guessed you didn't, actually. I caught the eye of, of the man I think was responsible. And he said, well, I kept missing. And in this way, I found it rather rather charming that he was actually prepared to admit it. You know, the, the, he, did, he did have an... Um, well, he did have a, an ability to tell the truth sometimes. He was... Um, a multi-personality. This was an idea put in my head by Mike Malloy, the former editor of The Mirror, who, who, who said to me when I joined that I needed to be able to understand that Maxwell was many things. And he, he was, that, that, that sums it up, he was a multi-personality. He, he was a city businessman. He was a Jewish father. Um, he was a bully. Um, I gather he was a Lothario, but I, I didn't, that didn't really cross my path at all. Maxwell was not a British person. I mean, he may have had British citizenship, but he didn't really understand the historic British character. He was a man with a huge appetite for asserting himself. He, he believed he could make anything happen. He, he had a force of self-belief. In some ways, he was an equal opportunity employer. If you stood up to him, as I did, you didn't get bullied if you argued back. He was fine. He was, he was always great to me. And, and I didn't do his bidding. That's it for this season of Power the Maxwells. If you enjoyed the story, then please rate us and tell your friends. I also want to let you know that we're hard at work on the next season of Power. We have another amazing character who you think you know, but I promise you don't. I can't tell you who it is yet, but stay subscribed to this feed, and we'll announce all the details very soon. Power the Maxwells is written and presented by me, Tara Palmieri. Producers are Paul Smith and Grant Irving. 
story editor is Dasha Lisitsina. Our executive producer is Tom Koenig. Original music by Nolan Schneider. Engineering and scoring by Spoke Media and NPAL Audio. Our visual designers are Emma Lansdowne and Alex Elder. Special thanks to Ella McLeod, Joe Sykes, Russell Finch, Peggy Sutton, Steve Ackerman, and Mark Rivers. Mark Rivers.